Welcome to Authentic Living with Roxanne, a place where we have conscious conversations about things that really matter in our lives. And now, here's your host, Roxanne Durhaj. Hi everyone, it's uh, Roxanne tuning in yet again this week. How are you today? Uh, today I have Lori Guest. Hi Lori, how are you today? I'm good, thanks for having me. Thanks for coming. Uh, so Lori has um, just recently uh, released a bo- her book and um, I'm going to talk a little bit about her background and her bio. Uh, she's a keynote speaker and author and a, a CSP, which is a Certified Speaking Professional, which is uh, uh, one of the highest designations in the speaking world. And she's a go-to resource for customer service excellence. Uh, for about two decades, she's shared her practical point of view on customer service and staff development with audiences and, and uh, companies across the Canada, lending real-life examples with actually proven steps for improvement. Her latest book is The Ten Cent Decision, How Small Changes Pays. Pays off big presenting her most sought after practical, impactful strategies to find and retain the best staff and highest quality customers while delivering exceptional guest experiences. So Laurie, you've obviously been, you've been at this for quite a long time. So just kind of tell me, you know, and for people listening, what's, what kind of got you um, on this realm of, of customer service? Were you frontline at one point or did you kind of go to business school and decide that that was the arena you wanted to focus on? Well, actually, I think I was taught customer service at a very early age. I've had an entrepreneurial spirit since I was five years old. And, and uh, so my family was uh, really good at their people skills. So I think I learned it early. But how I professionally got into it is I have a healthcare background. And I worked in a well-known regionally-based ophthalmology surgery center in Northern Illinois. And we were known for our customer service. So our surgeons were not only great doctors, but they were great marketers and great service Mm. delivery kings and queens in my mind. And so at an early age, I started working with them at about 21. And again, frontline, just like you said, I started there and just worked my way up through the company. And as we became known for our service, other industries would call and say, hey, what secrets do you guys have? Because people seem to be so happy when they come to your place. And my doctor looked around and said, hey, Lori, you like to talk. Why don't you go? And uh, I found out that I loved it. And and eventually found that there was certainly a need for teaching service uh, out in the world. So I eventually left the practice after 18 years and I speak full time with my own company. So it was a gradual thing over years, but I have such passion for service that seemed like a natural fit. And I guess in the medical field too, right? Like, I mean, you know, kind of what we know about physicians, a lot of them are very good at doing what they're, uh, you know, their high skill is and but sometimes that that kind of interface between a patient and physician is not oftentimes not the best because they're meant to come in, do their skill and they kind of move on. You know, in here in Canada, um, you know, I've worked a lot with a lot of uh, hospitals also, but that's oftentimes the critical element that a lot of people will talk about is that while he or she comes in, they're not, you know, they're not so good with how they engage, they get the job done, but I don't feel any real kind of connection. So it sounds like what you were exposed to was a little bit obviously different. 
It was different. And our doctor had a great philosophy and it's true for all entrepreneurs, not just physicians, but he believed that a doctor should do only what a doctor must do, which is examine, diagnose, and treat. And everything else should be done by somebody else. Now that doesn't mean he didn't deliver great service, but his time with the patient was narrow. And so that means every other minute that they're in the clinic, the rest of us better be delivering that five-star service as we call it. So that they leave feeling taken care of, not just by the doctor, but everybody around them. And that's true whether you own a shoe store or a car dealership or whatever we want the highest level doing only what the highest level must do and that's why i believe in an integrated approach to customer service so so you kind of think of uh you know with uh complaints i know i'm sure you've probably heard of Mal malcolm gladwell and he talked a little bit about you know not you know because your background is physicians he talked about that in fact a lot of people if something went wrong if they had a connection to the the caregiver or the system in your case uh the ophthalmology practice even if something went wrong they were more li less likely to kind of proceed and take action against the practice or, or the business because and and this was research that had been done where they had tracked physicians and looked at that so some kind of sense that um i care about you or i feel cared for impacted people's uh ability to kind of accept if something didn't go so well well, absolutely. In fact, I just finished with a client that had me in four or five locations and it was a safety conference. And uh, people were wondering what does safety and customer service have to do with each other? And they have studies uh, along that same line that if we have had low incidence of problems of any kind, customer service related, if we ever have a safety issue, they're less likely to take an action. Exactly what you just said, because you're feeling like, oh, okay, we're, I, I, these are my words, but let's cut some slack because I've put some social capital into this relationship already and that makes perfect sense you know and it's so, it's so true because uh you know when you kind of when you enter an environment you know you can think about it whether it's you know getting your oil changed or um you know going to your dentist i know when i walk into an environment i'm kind of you know and if especially if i'm new let's say i'm trying a new service i'm wanting to kind of feel a certain way right i'm thinking sure. oh do, does this kind of feel like a place I, I, if I have to come a couple times a year, I'm yeah. going to want to. And sometimes you walk into places and people are indifferent, right? Like they kind Absolutely. of, you know, they do their job, but they're kind of like, oh yeah, okay, well, you know, you're next in line, no big deal. And other places, you know, the person will, they'll make an effort. They'll, you know, how, how was your drive in or, you know, you know, did you have trouble finding us? So they'll, mm -hmm. they'll make even a little chit chat like that starts the experience at, at the front is that so let's talk a little bit about kind of your approach and a lot of the things that are in this book because it sounds like it would be something that would be a, a fantastic resource for a lot of companies so yeah yeah what, I'm excited, yeah, what I'm excited about the book is it's called The 10 Set Decision, How Small Change Pays Off Big. And the point of the book is that we don't have to have these big, huge ideas to make an impact. In fact, low cost, no cost ideas, the 10 cent decisions can have the biggest impact. But what was interesting about the book is as I was writing it, and those of uh, people who might be listening who are writers uh, totally understand this, we write with an avatar in mind. We write with a person in mind so that I'm writing directly to you, Roxanne, if you were my uh, avatar, the words I choose, the stories I use, the better the book if I have an actual target, a demographic that I'm writing for. And when I attempted to do that, it was amazing how often I would kept writing 
the words, if you're a team member or a leader, if you're a leader or a team member, I didn't seem to have my avatar clear of who I was writing to. So I was sharing this in my mastermind group one day, and one of the gentlemen in the group said, well, why don't you write a two-sided book? Why don't you write one half for what team needs to hear, and then write to what leaders need to hear? So it led to the idea that I'm actually two-sided. So the team, and you read it from the back cover to the middle. So half of the book is upside down. There's no duplication of content. So I really believe everybody should read the whole book, but who I'm writing to, who my focus is, is dependent on which side you're on. So for example, team members don't have the ability most often or are not empowered enough to make big decisions, let's say on pricing and packaging, or maybe where something is positioned in the store. All of those are 10 cent decisions. Leaders are the ones who are going to have to say, okay, we're going to run this special. So there's an example where I might be talking to the front line about words you choose and how you interact with the front line, where the leadership, they might be in the ivory tower somewhere and aren't in the front line at all. And it really helped the book snap together of who I'm really talking to, but the added benefit that I didn't see coming is if they do take the time to read the whole book, they will be refreshed and seeing it through the other person's goggles, mm-hmm. which is so important because I think most leaders at one time or another have been on the front line. It's how they work their way up to you know, their leadership positions. But when's the last time that they served on the front line and being reminded of some of those challenges we deal with day in and day out, I think can be important to their decision-making process. So that's how the book came to be a two-sided flip book. What an amazing, I've never, first of all, wow, I'm impressed. I'm a writer. <laughs> and just the thought about, about that, you know, what an, what an amazing way, because you're so right. Because when I speak to leaders, I'm, I'm having them think about it from their perspective, but then the mm-hmm. impact on the front line. But if, if the front line were to think, oftentimes when there's change, for instance, in an organization, the front line will say, well, the leaders don't understand what we're going through. They, 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 you know, they can, they're not going to be affected. How are they being affected? They're not losing sleep. They're not seeing that the leaders, in fact, going through equally as much stress, but in a different way. And what they can show potentially sometimes is not the same as what, what maybe the frontline person can maybe sharing with their direct supervisor. And I I think organizations that really do well, when you look and say, wow, that that small or medium-sized business is really rocking it. I think what a lot of them have in common is this integrated approach that the front line is thinking about how can I be empowered to make the best decision for the business? And you've got leaders that are thinking, how can I make this work easier or smoother for my front line? So I I do think that integrated part is huge. So more more, uh, integrated up and down versus kind of, you know, the separate silos that, you know, obviously that's what happens a lot of times with with disconnection, a lot of times with a lot of strategy, there's Mm -hmm. a big strategy, it's rolled out. It's, it's kind of, you know, you know, they might do a tiered approach to some change, but sometimes along the way there's, there's need for more repetition. Right. And the aha I had when I was writing the book that may be of interest to you is that the reason I delayed so long, my first book was a, a self-help, it's called Wrapped in Stillness, A Personal Retreat Guide. And it was the book in me that had to get out. It's the <laughs> book that you take away and you get away, get a plan, listen to your inner voice. With your background, I'm sure that you're very into that kind of yes. stuff. That was my first book and it had to get out of me. But from a business standpoint, the customer service book is the one that makes sense to match my keynoting. And I put it off for almost two decades. And I kept asking myself, why am I putting this off? And then it dawned on me one day, it's because I think everything that needs to be said about customer service has already been said. 
So I felt like with, with my first book, I had all kinds of unique angles to how I think about things. But customer service isn't this common sense, as they say. And so here's my aha moment. I took a writing retreat with a woman by the name of Kathy Fayak. It was an online virtual writing retreat. And she had six or seven people on just like this on a Zoom call. And we all talked about what we were going to write about. After the first hour, she said, okay, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to give you a writing prompt. And then I want you to go away and I want you to write nonstop for 30 minutes on whatever prompt I give you. And I'm like, okay, this will be fun. And the prompt was simply this, dear reader. That was the prompt, dear reader. Oh, wow. And so when I went away and, and started with dear reader and just didn't think about what I was typing, just typed like crazy, this is what came out of me. Dear reader, I bet you're wondering what do I possibly have to say about customer service that hasn't already been said? Well, this is what I have to say. And I just let it all just bubble out, not in, not in final form, but in that creative thing. And what I realized is since I'd been an entrepreneur since I was five and all these different businesses I dreamed up as a child and, and made money doing, I learned customer service as I went. And that became the model for the book. So every chapter starts out with a small anecdote, real short, but cute and entertaining. But then here's what I learned when I was selling sweet corn on the corner. Here's what I learned when I started a catalog business in fourth grade. And so that became the structure of the book so that mine is different than the other ones that you see. And I think it's an interesting way for leaders to, to think about, uh, you know, your authentic approach to things. That was my authentic approach. This is who I am. And I may be repeating what others have heard, but it's done in my own way. So that gave me excitement to get it done. Once I had that idea, it only took about nine months to get it done. So Awesome. Awesome. So out there in the, in the business world, what kind of things are people ignoring, which should seem basic, if you understand customer service? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I think that the thing people are missing is set time aside to train. I believe when we hire people, especially when it comes to customer service, we teach them the tools of how to do the task. Here's how you run the keyboard. Here's how you spin the dials. Here's how you pack the boxes. Whatever job it is that we have for them, we teach them the skills of the job. But when are we training customer service? Because so many times people believe it's common sense. And the thing is, I've, I've thought about this long and hard. There's about at least five things that go into common sense. So if you and I were both starting at the same place at the same time on a frontline job, we both have different childhoods. We had different experiences and different households we were raised in, and that became our model. So if my parent was one way or your guardian was another way, that was our example. So the place where you grew up, the uh, era in which you were born, we see generational things playing a part here. And that somebody who is a 60-year-old employee comes to work with different values and behaviors than someone who's 18 years old and just graduated high school. So we've got the era in which we were born. We've got our own personalities. I'm extroverted. I am, you know, bold. And I'll talk to anybody about anything. I have a child who's the exact opposite. That she's introverted. And so for her to just get out there and smile and talk to people, it's not how she's wired. And then we have our previous work experience. What was accepted at the job where you were before? You bring that to the table. And then finally, who are you working beside today? 
So if they take the two of us and they put you next to somebody who's that outgoing bubbly teller at the bank, and it's your job to learn from her, you will begin to model her behavior. I get put back in the loan officer's department and I'm sitting next to somebody who's a grumpy person who's been doing it too many years, that becomes my model. So I don't think there is something as simple as common sense. I think it is so different from person to person. We better make sure we train the culture and train the expected behavior and accept no less. Easier said than done, but it is what I think people are missing. Right. So just don't throw people in. Expect them to say, you know, you know the job, just accept it. It's, it's, this is your environment. This is our culture. It kind of seep them into it. So I recognize that, like you said, if you or I were to start in the same company and we're, we're doing parallel uh, positions, we're going to bring a whole lot of different. I'm like you too. I'm extroverted. But I mean, but sometimes I recognize that someone that's introverted in some of the positions that I've had have taught me so much more because they, st- they lay back. And they absorb things from a different way that before I, I'm already in the pond and they're back there and they've already kind of seen what I should have seen in the pond. So you, you recognize you, there's value to be learned from every person. Like you said, you know, who, who am I around? What's my personality? Right. You know, I can right. learn. We can all learn from each other. But and then context, if you've had bad situations that you've been in or, you know, and, and you've had, you know, less than desirable employers or things like that, you're bringing those you know, unknown variables with you, not knowing that you're going to bring it to your new position, but how do you kind of, you know, allow that person to recognize that if your environment is the best, how, how is it that you are going to expose them to it being a good place to be? And the other thing is, is to keep in mind as leaders, those listening to this who are leaders, is that it can't just be a one and done. I, I worked with a company a couple of weeks ago that guess what? This is when they do their customer service training during day one of orientation. Now, you're still thinking about where do you hang your coat and where do you punch in and out who you can eat lunch with. The idea of learning their culture and their way of treating their customers is going to go way over our heads on day one. And you look at professionals. I always use Tiger Woods as an example. It's like, who's Tiger Woods' coach, right? He's still got somebody telling him how to be better. And so even as good as he is at one time, number one in the world, he's still out there practicing consistently. And in business, I don't think we put enough emphasis on practicing. We throw people in, like you said, we throw them into the pond and then we hope that they do well I think we have to have a consistent plan for training and it's rinse and repeat you do it over and over again because have you ever gone into a place where you know somebody's been there for years and their customer service falls way short it's not because they don't know how it's because they've, they've probably gotten rusty or tired or whatever so we've got to keep doing the kind of the booster shots I guess of customer service training. So those would probably be my two answers to your question is we've got to make time for it, but then we have to keep it up on a consistent basis. And that one and done, right? Like, I mean, like teach your, yeah, exactly. If you, if you teach a concept, but the person doesn't have the ability to go out and apply it, it's like anything else. It's any, it, you know, you, you kind of go, oh, this is nice. And then I, I don't get, you know, mentored or anything like it. I kind of, you know, oh, it didn't work. So I'll, I'll kind of put it apart versus kind of checking what, what part of it worked, what worked really well, what didn't work, what would you exactly. sh- shift all those things. And that's the, the piece that you said on an ongoing basis, people would have the opportunity to come back and say, oh, I'd like to learn more about this or that. So I would think that the managers would be, you know, ta- let's talk about different layers of, ma- of training for customer service in mind. Oh, that's how, interesting. Yes, let's do that. How is that different? For, let's talk ma- macro to micro. 
Okay. So, so I, I feel like the leader at the top of the pile, I feel their job is to create the vision and the culture. This is what we want it to feel like here. This is the experience we want our guests to have when they come. They've got to set that tone and they need to be the model for it. If they say we're going to greet every customer and then they're charging through the establishment with a head of steam on and not being kind to the people they meet, that is not a good role model for us. But they're not going to do the day-to-day -day training. And again, it depends on how big of an organization are we talking about. I deal with some businesses where they have four employees total, you know, small to medium business. There aren't layers. But in some of those bigger, medium to larger companies, of course, we're going to have the layer. So I think below the leader, we're going to have some kind of mainline managers who are starting to create those silos and you know years ago they talked about break down the silos let's not have silos well I'm a Midwest farmer's daughter silos agree for uh, uh, exist for a really good reason they keep the good stuff in and they keep the bad stuff out so I am a believer in silos and that we need departments so that they function correctly inside their silos but I think we need tunnels or bridges between those silos so that we can interact with each other but I want each of my silos to have a mainline manager who has the ability to spot issues in my own department and be able to make changes swiftly and with empowerment and with support of that upper leadership that we talked about. And I feel that's the hub of where the big stuff happens. Because again, let's take a bank, for example. If I'm in charge of the bank tellers, I know their needs way more than what I know what the mortgage bankers need. Well, those are two examples of silos with very different needs and probably different customer service approaches. And I would think at that level, from the middle managers to the leadership, because the leadership, like you said, they, they're, they're having the aerial shot. However, their interface with those middle managers has to be continual. Because if, if like to your point, if I'm, if I'm in my silo, I know that like the back of my hand. I know how it, what, what, what's the, the, the positives, the negatives, the, the ongoing concerns, what's coming down the pike, you know, what's the dissension, what's going really, all that stuff. But I would think that that uh, communication um, from the aerial shot should be ongoing and everybody kind of knows on an ongoing basis what the different needs are of all these silos to be able to kind of shift it, if need be, the strategic kind of vision on top. And it is, it's really interesting to me how often after I'm done speaking, when people come forward to share their private questions or concerns, if I had to pick one common denominator, almost always, it is the middle to lower level person who's coming up and complaining that they're bumping up against the top of that silo, that they're, they're not getting the information they need in either directions. Words not making it to the top of what's going on or what the problems are, or training and information is not making it down so that we know how to behave. And it, it feels like people are kind of um, moving around with earmuffs on. They can't really, they, they aren't really aware of what's going on because the information isn't flowing. And that's a hard, uh, it's hard to give them a solution to that because a lot of times it's that mainline manager that is their blockade. You can't go around them. You can't go through them. You got to try to deal with them the best you can. And people never like that answer. They're always hoping there's a magic pill. And when I have to say, I don't think I have a magic pill for you, you can tell that they're disappointed. But to, to your point is that it's when we start having these layers that are not an open flow, a vertical flow of communication and objectives, that I think we start to see the breakdown that comes all the way down to the front line where you and I as customers walk and, and feel that something's not right and maybe we don't want to return. It could be something that we're discussing that's the cause of that. So what, 
for middle managers, for companies that you've seen that have kind of addressed it, and I know this is going to be, you're going to tell me every company is different. But mm-hmm. first, I know when I was a, a you know, I was an executive consultant for a health and wellness firm, and, and we dealt with different sector, size, industry, all over, can, all over North America. And what we found that the biggest concern there was, was that the management, the middle management skills um, was, was subcart part best. I don't care if it was a fortune 500 company versus a mom and pop with, you know, two to three employees. It was the ability of those managers to um, communicate effectively, understand their employees, recognize we were, uh, we dealt a lot with psychological services and health and anything that would keep people away from work. They fell down. They were, were the pretty tactical, like you, to your point, they got a, they got pulled up the ranks and they, you know, mm-hmm. and they got into these positions, but their, their, you know, soft skills or their people skills was less than, and oftentimes these people have been left alone for so long that they're scared to go to HR to say, I've been doing this job for 30 years and I don't know how to talk to that employee about X, Y, Z. So they would call us to be able to coach them on how to, to deal with that concern. Well, absolutely. And, and I couldn't agree more that we see a lot of that. Of course, it's not universal, but if it's a struggling organization, I think what you're talking about is absolutely at the crux of it. And I also think a dangerous thing that happens is a middle manager, I, mean, I like to talk in metaphors, I almost see them like somebody who's rock climbing and they've made it a certain way up the mountain and now they're going to dig in. They're going to get that toehold in really tight to hold their position because they certainly don't want to slip and go down. And I don't know that they they uh, agree that they have the skills to go higher. So they take a, a foothold. And when we see a foothold, we see managers that are not really open to change. They hold information because knowledge is power. Some of the best middle managers I've ever seen are the ones who bring people up behind them to their same level so that the place can almost function without them. That's a strong manager because, again, everybody's in there pulling their load where a manager that holds everybody back and holds their turf kind of finds themselves halfway up the mountain by themselves without somebody that's holding the rope with them. And I think that if we could get middle managers to understand early on, the stronger you, the, the people that you surround yourself with, the stronger they are, the more likely they can do your job instead of you, the better your whole place is going to be rather than feeling threatened. Did you notice that a lot in the work you did? Oh, absolutely. And, and then all the work that I do now with coaching or speaking, that's what we talk about. It's like, if we, it's, it's the opposite of ego. It's like, you know what? I'm a leader. And if you think about what a leader, what we know in today's day and age is to walk alongside versus, yes. uh, you know, I have the answers and I'm going to like, you know, impart it onto you. So I think that's what we found is that the leaders that kind of looked and said, you are a reflection of me. And if I could walk out of this organization tomorrow for whatever reason, and you, we, you could continue along, maybe there would be, you know, obviously shifts that would have to be made until there was a replacement. The business could still function. Those were the organizations that we found were more successful. And it makes perfect sense. And I wish I understood more about why people feel so threatened in those positions, but you certainly see it. 
when you go in. In fact, it's one of the reasons I stopped doing coaching years ago. I used to do just a little bit of coaching because I love people. But what I found out, unless you're a professional like yourself, who's had the high level training, you dig yourself into some problems there because you have all the psychological background of not only the person you're coaching, but then that domino effect they have on everybody else. And I think uh, people need to be very careful when they're coaching others that they don't get outside their pay grade and start giving advice that maybe it works for me, but I give that advice to the next person and I have created something that I didn't even see coming because I don't have your type of background. Very important. Yeah, you have to look at the cultural context of the environment. What is this person's position? There's so many variables that you have to know. And when we would offer consultations, management consultations, we would say, okay, how does this fit with the union? Have there been arbitrations? You know, you know, a lot, there's so many other variables before we could kind of, kind of give guidance because you can go give guidance out of context of the organization. And then you could, then it's a political hot potato and, and you've just given guidance to somebody that's going to go out and do something uh, that could be detrimental to the organization. Yeah, I think that's an extremely interesting topic, how people can go down that path of one minute you're guiding and coaching and mentoring. Next thing you know, you, you've fallen into this deep hole that's going to be a big problem. So that's a very interesting topic. So that's, um, you know, for, for organizations that are listening or leaders that are saying, we, we have some problems, we've done some things, what kind of things should they be considering um, to kind of gauge where they need to go? Well, you know, that's an interesting question because of the fact that some people believe in, in the customer questionnaire. And I've never been a huge fan of that. I realize it gives you data, but I think that it skews towards the negative. I think, it, I, don't, I don't know about you, but I will fill out a survey when I'm not happy and I need to tell somebody I'm not happy. But when I'm happy with the service, I have less, less tendency to do that, which is unfortunate. I shouldn't do that. But I don't know if maybe we look at some skewed results when we do that. And I feel that an approach that we should maybe be looking at is as simple as what's our return volume, depending on the business you're in, but what's our, what's our percent of return customers? What's our percent of new customers? Are we retaining who we find? And I would take a look. Stats don't lie. Numbers don't lie. Mm. You can look at as many online reviews as you want. I think a lot of people think competitors go in and leave those nasty reviews for <laughs> other bed and breakfast. When I have right? and so your, question, your question to me is, you know, where do we start? And I think we start looking at our own numbers that we can prove. Are they going up? Are they going down? What are we hearing? What are some of the um, trends that we see inside? So for example, in our clinic, anytime a patient gave a complaint, we had to fill out what we called an internal incident report. It was not part of the medical record. It was just an HR record that we'd be able to say, here's what the complaint was, and here's who was involved, and here's how we tried to solve it. And we kept those and studied those. And you would see patterns that there might be one particular person in a department who was getting more complaints than everybody else. Let's go back and do some retraining. Let's let's figure out is it their rough edge, is it the way they say things. And then we can make, and this is the important part, specific customized training. I can't just say to you, Roxanne, you need to be nicer to our customers. Mm-hmm. Well, if you knew how to be nicer, you would already be doing it. So not only do I need to show you examples of where maybe your behavior has fallen short, here's the important part. I need to give you tools to make it better. 
and we need to define what those tools are. I mean, mm. in some cases, it could be something as simple as a book like mine or another one, or it could be audio tapes. It could be a formal coaching program. It could be um, online learning. It could be a class of some kind. There's all these resources out there, even something as simple as sending them to a library and finding, uh, going online and finding that resource. But I can't just say to you, be nicer to the customers. I need to hand you that resource or that buddy and mentor to show you how to do it. I think that's important. Well, and you know, and you, to your point, metrics are, are the way to kind of look at it because I know with uh, when we would do trending analysis on what would keep people away from work, we would look at that. So let's say in the hospital sector, about 15% of people uh, that attended psychological services early, um, you know, they were able to stay at work and they would lessen the amount of days that they would, because they, they sought intervention early. That's interesting. So you kind of look at that metrics. You look at the short term, the long term, the arbitrations, all those things. Mm -hmm. And that can kind of give you information. And it it did. So we would look and and know across hospital sectors is about 15% is a good utilization. And some companies would say, hey, we don't want 15%. But in fact, 15% is healthy because that shows you that people are learning, hey, I may be having a disagreement at home with a partner, or I may be having um, issues at work, I'm going to pick up that phone and I'm going to talk to someone that can give me guidance early. And then generally what they would do is they would um, fill out the survey that would say, because I've used a service, I've, I, you know, I've, I've returned to work earlier. I didn't take time off those types of things. And what's the quantifiable amount for that lost time? Mm-hmm. So, Excellent. And, and the quantifiable, that, that's where it's at. How do we quantify something that's like a soft skill? And that would be an interesting thing for people to dig into. Here's where we are now. Here's what we're going to do. What do we want that result to be? And so I just think that it's, it's, uh, it's fun to dig into some of that stuff. So I'm sure everybody, you know, everybody listening, I'm here in Niagara Falls. So I'm sure uh, a lot of people that will hear this podcast with, with customer service would l- probably love to um, know more where they could pick up the book. Um, you know, we're a border town. We're tourism rich uh, here. Um, and, uh, you know, also, also with your keynoting. Um, just where can people reach you? And, sure. Uh, sure. Well, for myself to get a hold of me or learn more about the services we provide, it's my name at com. So it's Lori Guest, L A U R I E G U E S T, like a guest speaker. Took me forever to marry the guy that does <laughs> his what I do for a how living. Many, how many dates did that take? <laughs> exactly. And I said, if I'd known that's how it was going to turn out, I should have been looking for Tom Skinny. You know, that's what I like to be. Right. Um, anyway. So LoriGuest.com is where you can learn about me. If they're interested in learning more about the book or even buying it online, they can go to 10centdecision.com. You can either do it the one zero or you can do T-E-N. Either way, it gets you to the same spot. And they can also use the word podcast as a coupon code and get 20% off the book if they're interested. So happy happy to honor that uh, for anybody who might be listening and wants a, a few dollars off the book. We're happy to do that. Awesome. Well, I know you've been on a busy, busy schedule. Um, and uh, I wish you all the best with the book. It sounds like things are going well already. And for, and for everybody listening, you know, I always talk about, you know, we all want to be treated a certain way as leaders, whether you're a leader or a frontline person, at the end of the day, we are all wanting to have, we spend most of our time uh, in environments where we work. Um, we, we have to go out there and serve others 
We want to feel connected. So to think about that, whether you're a leader, um, what is it that you need to do to stay more authentically connected to yourself? Like I say, what is your authenticity quotient? How do you score? And then think about how are you imparting that to the others in front of you? So if anybody wanting uh, further information on me, I'm a mental health and wellness specialist, and you can reach me at RoxanneDurhodge.com. I'm a keynote speaker, trainer, and coach. Okay, take care, Lori, and thanks a lot for your time. Thanks. Bye. Thanks for tuning in to Authentic Living with Roxanne, creating the space for positive, healthy change. Roxanne is a keynote speaker, psychotherapist, and coach. To work with Roxanne, visit RoxanneDurhage.com slash blueprint. We'll see you next time on Authentic Living with Roxanne.